Hey guys, it's Duncan. I'm just going to give you a trigger warning. We're going to be discussing some difficult, very real topics today, which you probably gained from the title. This is going to be the series for the next five episodes. This is just to warn you that we will be talking about infertility, miscarriage and stillbirth and the experiences of them. So I just wanted to let you know before you continue listening. Thanks. Hi guys, thank you for listening to this new series of Loudmouth Theology and we're going to be looking at reproductive loss and the theology of the body. This episode is going to focus on four different historical approaches and the implications that their interpretation has on women and their bodies. As reproductive loss is a modern conception, I've organized each cultural response to first address infertility and then subsequently address miscarriage and stillbirth. The four different approaches that we will be investigating in this episode are the Hebrew Bible and the Rabbinic tradition, the New Testament and early Christianity, and finally modernity. These different investigations will demonstrate that the interpretation of reproductive loss is not monolithic but is multifaceted and diverse. Let's begin by looking at the Hebrew Bible and the Rabbinic tradition. Infertility is part of a perceived social narrative in which fertility is a divine blessing and infertility a divine curse. Candida Moss and Joel Baden's excellent book, Reconceiving Infertility, Biblical Perspectives on Procreation and Childlessness, is second to none looking at the biblical perspective on infertility and what that means for women at the time the Bible was written and what that means for us today. I highly recommend going to read Candida Moss's and Joel Baden's book. It will go far more in depth than I could possibly go in a podcast and it will just give you some very interesting questions to look at. In the book, they challenge the social narrative by rereading the Bible in a historically responsible way. Recognizing that the Bible is a multifaceted text that does not provide a singular understanding of infertility. In exploring infertility suffered in five particular narratives, Moss and Baden provide three main observations. The first, infertility was a social cultural death for women as it provided them with social status and a guarantee of remembrance. Second, God alone was responsible for childbirth. She opens wombs. And finally, infertility in the Hebrew Bible in an individual context is never a divine punishment, but is actually the natural state of women. Addressing the first observation, Moss and Baden place Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the wife of Manoah, and Hannah into their respected historical and cultural contexts. In these contexts, we can see that the need for children was necessary for the family and national interests. By producing more citizens, it enables newly established people groups to gain an economic foothold in an area. It provided the ability of self-defense and created more hands to help an agricultural society in which they were members. Children also provided a kind of safety net that would care for you in your old age. Children were also a guarantee of remembrance, that you would never be forgotten, with multiple biblical texts alluding to the hope that people would be remembered after their death. In looking at the narratives of the matriarchs, we can see that it's essential for their social status that women have children. We see this in particular in narratives of Rachel in Genesis 31 and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 11. Although their husbands have many children, they personally still cry out for children of their own. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, tries to reassure her of his love, but this does not placate Hannah, which is understandable considering the ease with which a husband may divorce his wife in Deuteronomy 24.1. The importance placed upon the female body is seen in the discussion of the matriarchs. With nearly all we know about any of them is whether they were fertile or who their partners were. They are thus reduced to vessels for childbearing, with nothing other to contribute to society than offspring. Brown women were seen as fragile shells, empty of consequence. 
In sum, the weight of fertility placed upon women within the biblical context is felt in multiple layers relating to the economic, social and religious needs of the family, community and nation. To fail to meet these needs led to a social cultural death for infertile women in the biblical context. This is displayed more precisely in Rachel's cry, Give me children or I shall die, in Genesis 31. Unfortunately, at the time, this often left women with the choice between a social cultural or a physical death with the high mortality rates of childbirth portrayed in Rachel's own in Genesis 35:18, Then the matriarchal story, Moss and Baden make two other points about the biblical context, the second leading into the third. The second point they make is that God alone opens and closes wombs according to the biblical authors. This therefore leads into their third point. Because women have no control over their ability to conceive, they are thus naturally infertile. I'll quote Moss and Baden here at length. In order for any conception and pregnancy to take place, there has to be active intervention on the part of the deity. The default state of humanity is not fertile. God must open the womb. And as the stories of the matriarchs make clear, even in cases of morally perfect women, sometimes God neglects a sacred and promised duty. End quote. Infertile women in the biblical narrative are therefore not blamed for their infertility. Rather, they have been overlooked by God. It is not a divine punishment. Moss and Baden go on to discuss that the biblical authors never actually attribute an individual sin to their barrenness. Instead, when infertility is spoken of as a curse, it is on a group level, in which all the women of the group become infertile, such as Abimelech's court in Genesis 20, 17-18. In short, infertility is not the presumed punishment that the social narrative portrays. The norm in the biblical concept is to see all women as infertile until God intervenes. In regards to miscarriage and stillbirth, the biblical authors speak of this less frequently than they do about infertility. However, miscarriage is not a taboo subject and is mentioned multiple times in different genres throughout the biblical text. The text never refers to an individual who is miscarried, often referring to animals and land rather than people. The linguistic links of miscarriage to women, land and animals portrays the agricultural background of the text. Miscarriage and stillbirth are regrettable whether they are animal miscarriages or human. In 2 Kings 2.21, we see Elisha purifying a spring of water, which was destroying the land and causing miscarriages. As with infertility, this may be seen as a cultural understanding that miscarriages are naturally occurring events that are not necessarily caused by the punishment of God. We see this again in Exodus 21.22-23, where people who are fighting cause a pregnant woman to miscarry. There is no caveat suggesting this is the will of God. The person responsible is fined in agreement with the woman's husband. Miscarriage and stillbirth are understood within the context of infertility by the prophet of Deutero Isaiah, henceforth referred to as Isaiah for simplicity, in his Mother Zion narrative. The Mother Zion narrative talks about miscarriage and stillbirth as in Isaiah 49:21, where Zion states, I was bereaved and barren. The word bereaved here is the Hebrew word shakula, which is often translated as miscarriage or to render childless. In tying these two themes together, Isaiah frames both as the responsibility of God and not a consequence of Mother Zion's actions. Quote, It is her womb that has been emptied, but it is not because of what she did. Those she carried within her have rebelled against God, and perhaps also against her. She did no wrong, yet her body betrayed her. The prophet's message resounds throughout the ages. Close quote. In sum, the authors of the Hebrew Bible believed that reproductive loss was not in the control of the mother. Is in the hands of God. It is also not the punishment of God unless it is en masse for a particular community, such as the women of Abimelech. However, reproductive loss was socially catastrophic for a woman, as her societal and familial position was often determined by her ability to bear children. 
Moss and Baden explain the implications for today. Quote, the social context from which the biblical emphasis on fertility emerged has not been perpetuated down to the present. And yet the valuation of childbirth and the related views of those who cannot bear has remained with us. End quote. Readers of the biblical texts created their own interpretations of them, which in turn created laws, duties, and obligations upon the human body. In the rabbinic tradition, as described by Judith Baskin, the obligation to have children was actually required of the male. The rabbinic law obligates male Jews to procreate based on a collection of proof texts from Genesis. Genesis 1, 28, 9, 1, and 7, and 35, 11. The most important of these is Genesis 35, 11, when Jacob is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. There are legal cases throughout the Mishnah, which cites husbands who are persuaded to grant divorces to wives who believe their husband to be the cause of their infertility. Not due to the obligation of the male to procreate, but so that the woman may not be left desolate without offspring to look after them in later life. This obligation for men to have children led to a rabbinic social policy, which granted divorce after 10 years of childlessness. The Gemara presents a Barithia, stating that if a man has taken a wife and been with her 10 years and she's not born a child, he must divorce her and pay her the sum of her ketubah, her marital agreement, lest he not have sons because of her. This obligation is, in some rare instances within the rabbinic literature, set aside as seen in the beautiful narrative in Peskita de Rab Kahana 22.2, in which an infertile couple has sought a divorce after 10 years of marriage without any children. They decide to have a feast as the rabbi has told them that marriage begins with a feast and should end with one. The husband requests that his wife secure the most precious object that he has in his house and take it back to her father's. At the feast, the wife helps her husband to become drunk and then orders their servants to take her husband to her father's house. When the husband awakes, he inquires where he is, to which the wife responds, Did you not say whatever precious object I have in my house? Take it and go back to your father's house. I have no object more precious than you. The rabbi hears of this and prays for the couple and in turn they conceive. Although the married couple in this narrative later conceived, they were able to stay together regardless of the obligation for the procreation upon the man. This narrative demonstrates the difficulty in Jewish societies in which loving couples would have to divorce out of loyalty to the obligation of procreation. In other rabbinic texts, the authors question whether it is ethically correct for a couple to divorce due to the procreation obligation. In case a man then marries a bad woman who in turn makes him bad. Would it not have been better for the original couple to have stayed together childless? Rabbinic literature sees an obligation the difficulty for both men and women who are infertile. It searches for explanations as to why this might be and sometimes grants dispensation as seen above from the obligation. Rabbinic literature sees an obligation the difficulty for both men and women who are infertile. It searches for explanations as to why this might be and sometimes grants dispensation as seen above from the obligation. There is some rabbinic literature that tries to answer these questions. In Genesis Rabbah 45.4, there's a group of rabbis discussing what the answers are. Some rabbis might say that the women are infertile so that they may lean on their husbands despite their beauty. Other rabbis suggest it is so that they might pass the greater parts of their lives untrammeled. Other rabbis suggest that it might be so that their husbands might derive pleasure from them. For when a woman is with child, she is disfigured and lacks grace. Thus the whole 90 years that Sarah did not bear, she was like a bride in her canopy. These answers undoubtedly fell short of the consolation they were intended to be for infertile women. This passage from Genesis Rabbah 45.4, where the rabbis discuss the reasons of why women may be infertile, continues in its attempts to make the infertility of the matriarchs meaningful by attributing it to God's need for prayer and supplications. Another theodicy, 
postulated that childlessness was due to a moral failure by either the husband or the wife, as Genesis Rabbah 45.4 implied through Hagar's accusation. Quote, my mistress Sarah is not inwardly what she is outwardly. She appears to be a righteous woman, but she is not. For had she been a righteous woman, see how many years have passed without her conceiving, whereas I conceived in one night. Close quote. The male body's reproductive capabilities were also deemed to be a sign of morality and sin. Rabbinic Judaism, like the Hebrew Bible, has multiple interpretations of infertility throughout its text. At times it proposes that infertility is not the fault of either person in the couple. In other places, it says it may be due to the morality of the husband or the wife, or it may be because God wants women to pray more to him. There is no one single interpretation that can be taken from it. However, the rabbinic tradition agreed that childlessness caused unprecedented harm to infertile women who required children for their religio-social cultural standing. Miscarriage and stillbirth in the rabbinic tradition are discussed primarily in a legal understanding of the event. Certain texts discuss miscarriage in regards to the status of the fetus and the impurity of the mother. The beginning of the discussions attempts to clarify the purity of the woman depending on the shape that she has discharged. The rabbis compare elements of the discharge to different creatures and the implications this has for the woman's purity. Babylon Tomah Nidah 23b, the rabbis begin to discuss the emotional aspect of miscarriage, stating that a father's heart would not mourn over misshapen offspring. This is intended to clarify the inheritance rights given to the firstborn son. Therefore, if the father would not mourn over such a loss, then it is not the firstborn son. The Laws of Mourning 1.6, quote, We do not mourn for fetuses. And anything which does not live for 30 days, we do not mourn for it. Close quote. Other places of rabbinic literature quote the infant for 30 days, even including the full 30th day, if it dies, we do not mourn for it. Close quote. This understanding derives from the Talmudic idea that the viability of a child was imbued at the ceremony of Pidjon Haben, celebrated 30 days after the birth. The rabbinic tradition doesn't attribute any divine punishment or judgment upon women who suffer a miscarriage or stillbirth. The key issue for the rabbinic tradition in regards to miscarriage and stillbirth is its implications for ritual purity and the law. It's seen as a natural aspect of life and something that would happen regularly enough to discuss and attribute legal understandings on the fetus and purity upon the mother. The father's mourning, or lack thereof, is discussed, yet the tradition is silent on the mother's experience. The contrast in the discussion of the relation between mother and unborn child and father and unborn child highlights the role of women in childbearing as one of a vessel. The father has the agency, the emotions, whereas the mother is discussed as if she were livestock. We're now going to look at the New Testament early Christian interpretation of reproductive loss. The New Testament and early Christian tradition do not address infertility directly. However, in discussing the eschaton, the end times, and bodily resurrection, and the diminishing of biological relationships in Jesus' teaching, we are able to find an understanding of what infertility was like in the New Testament and early Christian traditions. In the Gospels, we can piece together an understanding of infertility through Jesus' words on biological relationships. Jesus consistently diminishes the importance of biological relationships in the pericopes Mark 3, 31-35, 10, 29-31, 13, 12 to 13, and in Matthew 8, 18 to 22. Jesus repeats consistently that the discipleship he requires is to serve God above all else. This lowers the status of family and procreation in the Christian social hierarchy, something the Christian faith will deal with up to the present day. Jesus' teaching on bodily resurrection also provides us with an insight into infertility in the New Testament. In Mark 12, 24 to 25, 
Quote, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Close quote. This pericope is repeated in both Matthew and Luke, reflecting the importance of this passage to the synoptic authors. The resurrected body will not have the relationships of the old. We will be like the angels in heaven. If we are no longer given in marriage, then there will be no legitimate sex in the new world, no need for reproduction, and therefore the new body would be infertile. This understanding of the infertile body in the eschaton is promoted by an early Christian author known as Pseudo-Justin. Pseudo-Justin sees infertility and celibacy as a prototypical heavenly body. In his work on the resurrection, Pseudo-Justin argues that the womb is not destined to become pregnant. Therefore, procreation is not necessary in heaven. Quote, so pregnancy is not the immediate and necessary consequence of having a womb, but those even who are not barren abstain from sexual intercourse, so being virgins from the first and others from a certain time. Watson Baden interpret this eschatology as displaying the barren body as the telos of human existence, the end goal of human existence, that we are ultimately moving towards barrenness in the eschaton. As always, there are different understandings of infertility within the early Christian tradition, with other church fathers seeing it as a curse. John Chrysostom mentions that a father worries that his daughter might be childless, past her prime and unmarried, or repulsive to her husband. The worry that she would be infertile and repulsive to her husband demonstrates the stigma still surrounding infertility in antiquity. In Paul, celibacy is preferred, as we see in the teaching of Jesus, again demonstrating the diminishment of biological relations and procreation. However, there is a particular text in the Pauline epistles which contradicts this reading of Paul. In 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul states, quote, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, providing they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Close quote. Stanley E. Porter postulates that the author hoped to correct an ascetic tendency and promote the common social-cultural relations between men and women, including sexual relations. This would undoubtedly lead to childbirth amongst most couples, and, quote, the woman who abides in faith, love, and holiness, her salvation will come by the bearing of children, close quote. Thus, 1 Timothy provides us with a difficult text in which the connection between morality and infertility can be inferred. As the author suggests that women are saved through childbirth, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. This seems to imply that those who are infertile or have suffered a miscarriage are responsible for them. Their lack of faith makes them infertile and therefore unfit to be mothers. The New Testament and the early church tradition, as seen above, provide a plethora of interpretations regarding infertility. From the infertile and celibate being understood as those who exemplify the resurrected body, to the belief that a good and faithful woman will bear children and be saved through it. We'll go on next to look at the interpretations of modernity. As we've seen above, infertility is ex- as we've seen above, infertility was stigmatized throughout much of history, and in majority is no different. Motherhood has been a normative and central aspect of being a woman throughout most of human history. Although women are biologically equipped to carry pregnancy and give birth, the impetus to have children comes from the social cultural definitions of womanhood. Loftus and Adroit posited two main reasons for women desiring to become mothers. Firstly, that mothers feel that they have wanted to be mothers since they were children. And secondly, women feel that they want to be like the other mothers they already knew. In regards to the first reading, Loftus and Adroit show that anticipatory socialization in childhood, where young girls are given dolls, taught then to copy their mothers and prepare themselves to one day fulfill the same roles. 
The second reason can be seen later in life and is due to the need to conform to societal expectations and the perception that others around them are fulfilling these ideals of womanhood. This interpretation of womanhood often leaves the childless or infertile perceived with negative connotations, often being pitied, seen as deviant for not fulfilling the natural social function of a woman or judged as a selfish career woman. This stigma is also carried into medical connotations as seen in the World Health Organization's definition of infertility. Quote, a disease of reproductive system defined by the failure to achieve a clinical pregnancy after 12 months or more of regular unprotected sexual intercourse. Close quote. The inability to conceive is described in terms of success and failure. To reproduce is to be successful. To be infertile is to fail. Miscarriage's perception is closely related to the modern mother and the reproductive technologies that have been created in the last one to two hundred years. An excellent book that I'd highly recommend that I'm going to quote extensively for the rest of the podcast is called The Myth of the Perfect Pregnancy, A History of Miscarriage in America by Lara Friedenfelds. In The Myth of the Perfect Pregnancy, Lara Friedenfelds tracks historical understandings of miscarriage in the United States. Around the time of the American Revolution, beliefs about liberty, equality, and self-determination were not only being discussed in regards to the new nation, but also concerning women and their bodies. Women longed to control the number of children they had and when they had them, with their ideas often being discussed in private letters and diaries. During this time, miscarriage was often seen as a relief. An understanding of early pregnancy loss was unavailable. This understanding began to change just after the Second World War, during the baby boom when parents desired frequent pregnancies and began to see early losses negatively, yet not necessarily as a tragic event. At the height of this baby boom came the pill, or birth control pill. This revolutionized the American family and became the fulfillment of the wishes that women almost 200 years previously had hoped for. Women can now become fertile, in theory, in a time period that they wish to be. By the mid-1990s, this understanding of responsibility and control over fertility was being promoted by the American Institute of Medicine, now known as the National Academy of Medicine. Quote, The nation should adopt a new social norm, all pregnancies should be intended, that is, they should be consciously and clearly desired at the time of conception. Close quote. This promotes an illusion of control that pervades modern society. Modern technology enables us to control to a certain extent conception. However, the ability to conceive and carry a child is out with that illusion. The realization of this brings into question our understanding of autonomy and agency. In describing the difficulties she had in wrestling with her miscarriage and her pro-choice stance, J.J. Keith beautifully portrays the fallacy of control. Quote, I kept my face neutral as my students jumped in with their ideas about choice and freedom. We talked a lot about women choosing not to stay pregnant, but not at all of embryos being the ones to make the call. End quote. While wrestling with miscarriage and stillbirth, many women lose a sense of self reinterpreting the idea of autonomy, agency, and what it means to be in control. The tragedy of miscarriage has also become more prevalent as pregnancy tests now tell you before you have even had a misperiod. The way these tests are marketed is fed by the modern conception of a good mother, one who bonds and natures their baby nearly from the moment of conception. This good mother narrative was created in part by the psychological and medical investigations into pregnancy and parenting. After World War II, the WHO commissioned John Balbury to write a report on the mental health of homeless children in post-war Europe. His subsequent work, maternal care and mental health, laid the foundations for what we now know as attachment theory. 
Attachment theory grew throughout the social imagination and in the 1980s researchers studying prenatal bonding speculated that if they were able to coerce or at risk women to bond with their fetuses, they would be able to overcome poverty and addiction. By the 1990s, parents were being made to feel guilty about every missed second they weren't physically with their child. This need to bond with your child unceasingly eventually made its way to the womb and with the launch of the internet, blogs and articles bombarded soon-to-be mothers with information on the way they can create a healthy mother-fetal bond. During the 1980s, women's bodies began to come under fire and were in need of societal control. Women needed to start thinking about the substances they were putting into their bodies. Mothers were being changed into possible abusers of their unborn children. In 1984, what to expect when you're expecting introduced the best odds diet warning mothers that every meal and snack which they ate until the birth of their child counted. Quote, before you close your mouth on a forkful of food, consider, is this the best I can give my baby? Close quote. No longer was a mother's body her own. Society with word or without presumed to censure its needs and wants. Miscarriage and stillbirth in the 21st century is a heart-wrenching change from centuries past. Although women are no longer required to be mothers, cultural understandings of the pregnant woman lay claim to her body and help create a narrative of the good mother. Modern technology, medical and psychological approaches to pregnancy and parenting have promoted bonding with the fetus at earlier stages within pregnancy, at a time when the majority of pregnancies miscarry. The good mother narrative often leaves women with a sense of shame and guilt. In conclusion, the way that reproductive loss has been seen throughout history has been varied and subject to change. There's not been a single narrative of what it means to suffer reproductive loss. The last century with modern medical and technological advances has begun to help us understand reproductive loss. However, it has also had a negative effect on women and their bodies. Divine punishment is rarely a thought in the minds of the modern secular mother, but blame and guilt are. They still question the actions that they have committed and search for answers when it appears their bodies alone have failed them. So we're going to investigate this a little bit more. Thank you again for joining me. I hope it's been interesting. And if you have any questions, please contact me. I would love to hear what your thoughts are. And if this has been helpful, we will go through what this means today and how we can challenge these. But I just wanted to kind of set up the situation and the history of reproductive loss and what we are facing right now. Thanks.